Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. This is the Health, Bioscience, and Medicine Medicine Edition. I have uh, Erez Lieberman. He's an assistant professor at uh, Baylor College of Medicine. And he's working on um, the human genome. Uh, from what I read, it's over, what, six and a half feet long, approximately, or two meters. Yet, it can fold up to tiny, tiny dimensions inside of our cell nuclei. How does this happen? And what does it look like when it's folded? What does that mean? What can you do with it uh, in its folded or semi-folded state? How can you guide it, change it, et cetera? So it appears that that's what uh, Dr. Lieberman's studying. So welcome. Thanks for coming, Dr. Lieberman. How are you doing? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it, it appears that that's what we're studying. You know, you always have to, in science, be aware of the possibility that what you think you're studying may not be what you're actually studying because your experiment works in some way you didn't fully appreciate or your theory as some feature you didn't quite get. But I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that it, it appears that what we are studying is, uh, is how the human genome folds inside the nucleus of a cell. To give people an idea of the scale, so I guess you know it's two meters long, but for American listeners, that's about six and a half feet. When it folds up inside the nucleus, what kind of space does it occupy then? Uh, uh, so the human nucleus, a typical cell, might be only about five microns. So a very basic question, a very basic question is how does a two meter long genome Hold up the fit inside a five micron wide nucleus. Yeah, that's amazing. If only the airlines could figure this out with our luggage, we would. Uh, Unfortunately, be a lot easier. I, I really don't want the airlines to have access to this kind of information because if airlines got any better at packing large quantities of uh, human DNA into a small space, I think it would be terrible for the rest of us. So that's I would want a major, you know, weaponization of our technology. Really, so you know, I, I try to make sure that there are no airline executives in any of my talks. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, we get inspired the wrong way. Yeah, so in terms of inspiration, good or bad, what inspires you to look at the structure of DNA, how it folds, et cetera? Like, why is that a, a curiosity for you and a, a source of research? Absolutely. It's a wonderful question. So I would say that it is interesting for three reasons. The first reason that it's interesting is that it's physically marvelous. I've got this two-meter-long thing macroscopic object that's taller than you are that fits inside a five micron wide nucleus, a tiny, tiny, tiny structure. Um, so how in the world does that work just physically? How do you pack stuff in there, right? And how do you, how do you manipulate it in, in any meaningful sense, right? I mean, it's one of the uh, most remarkably compact and yet functional information storage systems in the world. And, you know, if you think about that, you know, today there are companies that are bringing DNA-based data storage to the market as a way of storing information. So it's really remarkable um, how information is stored and manipulated inside uh, the nucleus of a cell purely from the physics engineering standpoint. I would say the second reason that it's very interesting is that it's clear that the packing is, you know, not just for storage purposes, right? Like if I put a whole bunch of stuff in my trunk, 
right? Or, or I'm, you know, an airline and I'm, you know, sort of putting a whole bunch of people into seats or luggage, you know, into a plane. The organization of a luggage is not particularly functional. It's not like anyone's going to be using the luggage. It's not like people are going to have like conference meetings on the plane. So you sort of are storing things, but they don't need to be really functional. Whereas it's very clear that the 3D architecture of the human genome is intimately linked to the function of the human genome. It's been understood, for instance, for decades that enhancer elements, right, short DNA elements that can live hundreds of kilobases away from a target gene, um, that these elements um, are able to turn the target gene on or off. So now that's, that's shocking, right? I mean, I have a gene, it might be 10,000 letters long. I have a, a little DNA element that's maybe 20 letters long, and it's hundreds of thousands of letters away from the gene, right? That's it's wild, right? Um, that something that's so far away in the linear contour of the genome can turn that gene on or off. And yet, uh, that's exactly what appears to happen. And it appears to happen uh, because physical loops form that take that enhancer element and bring it really, really close to that gene to turn the gene on or off. So what's actually happening in 3D is this thing is actually a machine and it folds and unfolds as the genome is being expressed in order to turn genes on, in order to uh, make copies of itself. Uh, it's an intimate part of the function of the cell and of the functioning of life itself. Um, That's amazing. That's great. So if I imagine in my mind looping very close to each other, both of them will be responsible for what we would call a gene. Is that possible? Does that happen? Well, I, I wouldn't say that there's like one loop, one gene. Uh, it's more that a gene, right? We live in some sense, like the, the world is three-dimensional, right? But you don't fully notice it um, sometimes. It took a while for people to figure that out because you know, it looks kind of two-dimensional to us, and we sort of walk around and operate in this uh, two-dimensional world. Um, the genes are a little bit different. They live in this one-dimensional world of the genome, um, and, and they can't move around. So if a gene needs to get in contact with other bits of the genome, the genome has to fold to facilitate that, right? So you imagine, you know, it's a little bit like Inception, right? In most movies, right, if I need to get from point A to point B, um, then I, I somehow, I take a car, you know, I have a chase scene, whatever it is, right? In the movie Inception, right. right, space like folds itself such that one location, you know, can become immediately adjacent to another. So the genome and the elements in the genome, they live in this funny, you know, 1D Inception-like world where they're in, some, they're in a location, they can't really move from that location, but the 1D bits can, you know, move uh, with respect to one another as the chain folds and bring pieces of DNA that were really far apart, really close to do their business. But I don't want to say like one gene, one loop, because, you know, a gene might be in contact with one element at one moment in time and a different element at a different moment in time in the context yeah, of the functioning of a cell. What I'm asking actually is, can you have one gene from three loops and can you know, part of a loop be reused in the expression of multiple different genes? We think so. Uh, yes, we absolutely think so. So a gene could be composed not just of a linear sequence, but if you brought multiple loops in close proximity, could, you know, let's say a transcription RNA read starting on one, move to the next loop, move to the next loop, 
and the composition of all those two or three loops, let's say, would comprise a gene? No. So that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, there are some very exotic genes that are kind of formed via looping a little bit like what you describe. Um, immune genes form in that way. So really beautiful work uh, by Fred Alt um, at uh, Harvard and participated in some of this um, has really shown how when you form an antibody, what's actually happening is the human genome is taking a big set of possible gene parts and forming loops between some of the gene parts, excising the loop, and, and putting the parts together to make a new gene in that way. That's like really amazing. Um, yeah, it's amazing, it's crazy, it's wild, it's a phenomenal and well-documented effect of loops at this point, but it's also exceptional. Typically, um, a gene, an individual gene is small with respect to a loop, and the loops give the gene, and specifically the promoter of the gene. So a promoter is a sequence that's immediately adjacent to a gene, uh, that can help regulate the gene. And what very often happens is loops will bring promoters of genes in contact with other elements uh, from throughout the genome uh, in order to, you know, ultimately, I think we can accurately describe it as exchange information in a certain sense. So which, uh, are you able to image DNA when it's in various states of folding and unfolding? Are you able to fixate it and then image it or image it? you know, in vivo somehow to see it and its complexity and how it moves? Uh, yes. Um, so I, I think we can say yes to all of that, except for the end, how it moves part. Um, in our lab, we don't really work for the most part on um, real-time methods, uh, although there are some, some labs that do. Um, but yes, I mean, I would say as a, as a scientific community, uh, we are absolutely able to uh, characterize how the genome folds in an extraordinary array of cells. Um, and we are able increasingly, due to advanced microscopy, to actually trace the fold in a single cell. Uh, and we're able, uh, in a lower throughput way, for handfuls of sites to watch how those sites move in a single cell over time. So, uh... What, I mean, what do you see in terms of uh, looking at it in its folded up state? Like, does it just look like a, I mean, does it look orderly? Does it look like a, uh, you know, I don't know, a knot, a, an unsolvable knot of complexity? Or what does it look like? When you That's a great question. So uh, one thing that I think is important to recognize is, uh, as one of my colleagues, um, Brian Beliveau, put it, uh, chromatin is like a snowflake. The genome is like a snowflake. You really never see two genomes folded in exactly the same way. So that's an important thing to think about uh, when you look at even the same set of positions uh, over uh, across different cells, you'll see that they're folded differently. With that said, there are certain patterns. There are certain positions that seem to form loops with one another. There are certain positions that seem to frequently be in contact, even if they live on different chromosomes. And there's certain positions that even though they're very, very close by on a chromosome, uh, rarely form contact. Uh, so all of, these, um, all of these features together that give rise to the process of genetic regulation, the process that turns genes on and off. So um, do you see when the, again, when the DNA is folded, um, how is a... Uh you know, parts of it transcribed? Is there like selective unfolding and a 
loop will suddenly appear above the, the knotted area that's distinct. And like, how do you imagine it if you were to, to picture it in 3D? I don't know if you have enough information, but how would you imagine things playing out when transcriptions happening? So part of that is, you know, exactly what ours and many other groups are, are, are trying to work on. Um, a traditional picture that people have uh, had is that there are regulatory elements all, you know, in the vicinity of a gene um, called the promoter. And there's these regulatory elements that live further away um, uh, along the chromosome, which are called enhancer. A physical loop forms between an enhancer and a promoter. Uh, to activate a gene. So that, that has been a you know, key model in the past. Um, it's clear that that model needs to be refined. Um, it's clear, for instance, that genes have a lot of capacity to transcribe themselves uh, and may not always require a loop for activation. The exact effect of the loop is turning a gene on or is it just sort of, you know, uh, increasing the throttle saying, hey, you know, I need more power. Um, a little bit unclear, uh, you know, what that is. That's, that's exactly what folks are, are working on. But uh, the, the general idea is that by forming loops, a gene can get into contact with positions in the genome that regulate that gene, that can turn that gene on or off. Hmm. Okay. Um, if you have, I, I forget how many base pairs we have. It's what, 3 billion or something? Uh, yeah, we have 3 billion base pairs per copy, so 6 billion ballpark per uh, cell, for a typical cell. You know, when I was in school a long time ago, we learned about the DNA unzipping and zipping. And, but how does that square with loops? Do, do loops form and then a portion of the loop unzips and it, it kind of like jaws open of the two unzipped parts of the loop? And then that allows accessibility from, you know, molecules to get in there and then it, that part zips back up or... Like how would you picture it? That's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful question as it highlights how we are not yet able to really fully square the different things that we know uh, about DNA with one another. And, and that's normal in you know, the context of a really complex problem uh, in which you can study different aspects. You know? So it's sort of like the uh, you know, famous uh, example of a, a number of different people who are you know, blindfolded, feeling different parts of an elephant. We know a lot about how DNA replicates and replicates via unzipping. We know a lot about how DNA forms loops. Um, We don't totally know how those processes work together. Like if got a loop, DNA is replicating. Well, usually there's no, the replicating region might be at any given moment, maybe small with respect to a loop. So you're fine but there are surely collisions that take place and what happens during one of those collisions and how does the cell account for that? We don't know. Uh, We really don't know um, very well at all uh, how that works. And so, you know, we understand these different features and capabilities of DNA, but we're still trying to put together comprehensive pictures for uh, how all of those work together. And what kind of a space inside the nucleus does the DNA have? I mean, so it fits in a five micron space, but, you know, if you consider the nucleus, is it in a tiny part of the nucleus? Is the nucleus huge versus the DNA inside of it? Or is it really tightly stuffed in there, yet it's doing all these, you know, movements? So so it's actually, you know, it's tightly stuffed in in a certain sense, um, but uh, it's uh, it's very loose in, you know, in other um, 
in other senses. So for instance, viral DNA, if you have DNA inside a virus, that's much, much more densely packed than the DNA inside the nucleus of a cell. Um, as Just to give people a sense of density, um, let's suppose you had just two large refrigerators and they were just full of just packages of ramen noodles uh, inside a typical, you know, three-bedroom house. So the total length of the noodles is enormous, right? It's like the length of DNA. Right. Um, and it's large. The total length of noodles is, is very, very large with respect to the size of the house. Um, yet there's actually plenty of room for the noodles to move around uh, inside the house if you, you know, for whatever reason, decided to use the house as a, uh, as a place to cook a massive house-sized pot of soup. Um, so that's, that's actually gives you a good sense of scale, right? So the amount, if you just blow everything up by a large factor, the amount of DNA in the nucleus and and its shape roughly corresponds to, um, about two refrigerators full of ramen noodles in a nucleus, the size of, you know, a typical suburban home. Okay. I got you. When, when loops come together or when loops, loops are in close proximity, are they actually even temporarily bound to each other? Are there points on the, the outer part of the DNA maybe that can cause it to adhere in close proximity? Or are there helper molecules that physically push loops in close proximity? Like how, how do you picture that? Yeah, no. So we actually have a pretty decent sense of uh, how that works. Um, what actually happens, it works, works a lot like a belt buckle. So there is a protein complex called cohesin. Uh, that protein complex lands on a chromosome at a particular place uh, and links two adjacent positions together. And, and then what happens is that the uh, chromosome sort of, you know, starts to form a loop where, where the cohesin, you know, the little, you know, cohesin rings aren't moving with necessarily with respect to one another. Set aside whether they're moving, you can ignore their movement. Right, but actually, the uh, the the DNA is sort of flowing through that ring. It's just like the the sort of the length adjuster uh, on uh, on the buckle on a uh, backpack. So there's this thing called a triglide, and you know the strap sort of goes in and then goes out. And uh, you know if you're trying to adjust the length of your backpack, you kind of can sort of push the uh, push the backpack strap in from both directions, thus forming a loop. So that's but the way- But as it goes through, is it, is it reading the sequence as it flows through this cohesin? Or is it, like, why would the cohesin uh, allow the DNA to slide through it? Does it stop it at a certain point? And then, like, how does it work? Yeah, so that is a, uh, that's a great question. Um, the way that it works is that there's actually certain uh, proteins on the genome at a particular position. Uh, and those proteins um, are signals to stop the cohesin protein from sliding. Mm. So it ratchets. So cohesin, I could see it like, I would imagine it straps around the DNA and it starts sliding. And then there's proteins that say stop and it stops there. And then the other end of it stops at another point. So exactly. once it's once it's looped around the DNA in two sections, then what? That's the only area between the two grab points that gets read or you know what happens then exactly that's exactly right so what uh what happens is that the two endpoints end up being in uh in very close proximity uh when 
when the cohesin complex has stopped. So one end and the other end are now in very, very close proximity. Um, now, I should say, though, that there's actually an additional consequence, which is that this process is constantly happening, and it's happening you know, over and over and over. And, and because it's happening over and over and over, any pair of positions within that tend to be within that loop uh, are going to uh, tend to come into proximity much more frequently. What's the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that if I'm a gene, I have actually a number of different ways in which I might uh, get in contact with a distal regulatory element, right? I could get in contact by uh, simply forming a loop directly to it, but I, I can also uh, get into contact by, um, I can also get into contact by simply sort of passing it by during this extrusion process, uh, even if I don't form, you know, a very strong loop to it. So that would say that um, the expression of some genes will probably likely coincide with the expression of others more often than not because of this? Uh, yes, that, that's exactly right. Um, we think that this is working as a mechanism that leads to uh, certain genes being co-regulated uh, with one another. So I'm, I'm picturing, I guess I'm still not understanding 100% the analogy here. So the cohesin, again, will grab on, selectively slide to an endpoint, and then does it bend the segment that is between the two cohesin straps, or does it, yeah, does it bend it together? Like, how does it uh, alter the, the shape of the DNA once it's locked in place in the two spots? Um, so well, what it's doing is it's forcing two bits of the genome to be in close proximity to one another, even though they're very, very far away in 1D. So that's really what's happening. Um, that's really what's happening. So is it acting like a, like a, like a tweezers? It grabs, it grabs, and then it tweezers two separate elements together or close to each other to form a loop? Yeah, that's, that's a way to think about it. But, but the critical thing is that the loop doesn't, you know, tweezers, you know, I can kind of take any two positions and, you know, bring them together with my tweezers. Uh, what's interesting about the way loops form in the genome is that they grow. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm from Texas. A great analogy is actually the way that a lasso works, right? So a lasso is a loop that can, it, it's a particular knot uh, called a lariat knot. Um, and the way that the, the lariat knot works uh, is that it forms a loop that can either grow or shrink. That's, that's actually the crit critical feature uh, of loops in the genome is that they can grow or, you know, we think more rarely, uh, but shrink. But the, the point is that you, you actually start with a very small, small loop and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger uh, until it stops at certain uh, particular positions in the genome. So in, in this respect, it's a little bit, uh, it's kind of like a lasso in that you have a, uh, you know, a length of this strand. In the case of a lasso, it's, you know, a rope. Uh, in, in the case of the genome, it's, it's DNA. Um, but you, it forms this loop that starts very small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So is the, um, is the lasso lassoed around the DNA at all times and just changes size? Are there, are there multiple, like, attachment points? you know, throughout the DNA and they're just growing and shrinking between these two stop points? Or do they attach and detach completely? So a segment, you know, even though it has stop points, is still free to be lassoed on one end or the other by, you know, some other cohesion. Um, so so that's, that's a great question. So in the case of a lasso, 
Um, there's actually a knot in the strand, uh, you know, in, in the rope that has this property that it forms a loop that can grow and shrink. The way that we think it works with DNA is that there's this particular complex, this set of proteins uh, called um, called cohesin. And cohesin basically grabs two pieces of DNA that are very close to one another in 1D, right? They're like adjacent. It grabs onto DNA at a certain point and effectively creates a sort of like lasso-like mechanism, um, creating essentially a tiny loop. Uh, and then by pulling through the DNA, through the little sort of cohesin pore, the little cohesin hole, um, you can make uh, that loop bigger and bigger and bigger. And in fact, that's that's what cohesin's, one of cohesin's jobs is it forms these tiny loops and makes them get bigger and bigger. Okay, okay, I see what you mean. I'm sorry so, if I'm really, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, if... It's uh, okay, it's hard to understand. I'm to kind of go but... back and, uh, and explain this a little bit more uh, a little bit more clearly, because that mechanism is, is critical. And actually, it's a mechanism, I mean, I think, you know, we and our collaborators um, really, uh, you know, first proposed that this mechanism was uh, happening in uh, the human nucleus. Um, although, I mean, we're really building on many, many decades of work on cohesion. And then the last few years, right, the notion that this lasso mechanism is working has actually been, you know, sort of proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and so, yeah, so, so it's, I think it's okay. I mean, this takes, uh, this takes multiple examples from multiple angles to, to get a handle on it. I think that's okay. You know, no worries. Um, you mentioned DNA being extruded. What does that mean though? So that's what we talk about when we talk about DNA loop extrusion. We talk about the notion that small loops of DNA form and then, uh, you know, by, uh, the action of this cohesin protein sliding along DNA, the loops get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's that's the loop that that's the process of DNA loop extrusion, which okay. you know uh, had been proposed, you know, going back decades by folks like uh, Kim Naismith um, and, and others uh, were pioneers of the cohesin field. And you know, we really, uh, you know, you know, we we and others, um, you know, said, hey. You know, we think this is actually happening in the nucleus uh, of a cell. Here's some experimental evidence that's that's leading us to think that way. And and actually, in the last few years, it's become clear that that is in fact happening. Huh. Crazy. Huh. Just to uh, complicate things, how do epigenetic marks play into this process? You know, if you have methylation or yeah, the action of the histones, what does that do? So there are different kinds of chemical modifications that can live on top of DNA or on top of uh, these little sort of DNA spool proteins called histones. Um, and they actually play a really interesting role in nuclear architecture. What seems to happen is if you've got similar combinations of these modifications, uh, those positions in the genome tend to uh, co-localize. They actually come together in 3D space. We actually have a paper coming out um, just in a, in a few weeks uh, with my, my, my colleague Peggy Goodell uh, that shows that actually some of these modifications actually cause that. So in a certain sense, you can think of these modifications as chemical addresses that say, take me to a certain place in the nucleus where I will hang out with my friends who have similar uh, chemical modifications. So are there, um, if I was sitting looking at, you know, again, in an exploded view or, you know, if I would have shrunk down to like, you know, micron size or smaller, I was sitting there watching this. It looks like, I guess, a giant aurora boris, like a giant snake moving. I don't know what it would look like. What, what do you imagine this would look like? How many different 
loops at any one time are being formed and grown and shrunk and you know is this just like a, a beehive of activity or is it uh, only a few things going on at once so i mean across the genome there's a lot of stuff going on at a given moment in time you know at a particular locus you know it depends on your it depends on your scale you know if i'm if i'm at a gene you know, we think that these loops can form and, and remain for, you know, hours and hours. Um, so if I'm living in a particular gene in contact with some distal locus via a loop, you know, it might, might be hours before I notice anything happen. Um, you know, I, what I might notice is other smaller loops colliding into me. Um, actually, we have um, a, uh, a paper I'm excited about with uh, our colleague, uh, Jan Michael Peters, um, coming out in eLife that talks about this notion that actually these loops, you have these larger, more stable loops, and you have these smaller loops that um, are constantly, you know, sort of colliding into them and then dissipating. So that's that's actually an interesting thing. Um, I would say if I'm even at the slow places in the genome where not a lot is going on, you know, every once in a while, I'm going to see, you know, a few loops collide and one of them dissipate. Um, and, and that whole process is something we're just starting to explore. I mean, you know, we did not know that loop extrusion happened in the nucleus. I mean, you know, this had not even been proposed um, until we, we published a paper on this in, uh, in 2015 and, and other labs, you know, looking at our data, you know, made similar proposals. You know, I, I would say 2020, you know, as of 2019, I think pretty much everyone believes that this is happening. But we're in the very, very early days of understanding the dynamics of looping inside the genome. What about uh, cell division? Do you think that all the looping stops? And so the whole, you know, all the DNA can, can replicate in cell division? Like, what, what do you think happens then? The looping changes in cell division. It's no longer as responsible for turning particular genes on and off, you know, and sort of this regular maintenance. And you have new classes of loops, new kinds of loops that form that, you know, are in some ways more responsible for the spatial packing becomes important. You know, like now we're going to go undergo this, you know, sort of stressful process of dividing the cell. A lot of physical things need to be working in tandem. And all of a sudden, you know, the physics, the packing, that becomes really critical and keeping a particular gene on or off a little bit less of the role. What do you think is orchestrating all this? Like how, it's it's insane. Like how could all this be orchestrated? How could the cell know, okay, I've got this gigantic three billion base pair thing that's looping and moving and grooving and uh, any thoughts there? Well, the, you know, human genome is a wonderful thing and it includes a code that describes how to produce a multiplicity of machines that operate on the genome itself, ultimately to replicate that genome um, and, uh, you know, replicate that genome into new cells and ultimately into new individuals. Um, So the genome, you know, has, has these answers if only we could read them. Uh, and that's, that's really what our group works on is, is just trying to understand what the genetic code means uh, a little bit better uh, in this area of, uh, in this area of folding. How is it regulated? How do these machines work? Um, and, and why do they need to work in those ways? Do you, you think you have any insights into how a virus would insert itself into a DNA because you know this, this 3D structure or CRISPR-Cas9? how it would act upon the DNA, what would happen when it does? Well, you know, one thing that's important to note about CRISPR-Cas9 is that it operates in, in you know, by binding to particular positions uh, on the genome. So, for instance, one of the things that 
uh, we've shown together uh, with, uh, with, with Fred Alt uh, is that CRISPR-Cas9 is actually an impediment to the extrusion process. And if you put lots of CRISPR-Cas9 proteins at a particular place in the genome, all of a sudden, uh, loops will no longer be able to form uh, that span uh, that interval of the genome. Okay. And then I, I don't know if anyone's even looking at it, but it'll be amazing to see, again, for instance, how a virus would endogenize into DNA. You know, where would it, would it cut? What would it do to get in there? You know? Yeah. No, the, those, are, those are great questions. It, it does seem clear that the viruses effectively prefer certain regions of the 3D genome, but it's early days for our understanding of that. What about um, mitochondrial DNA? It's, you know, I guess that's a lot simpler and smaller. Is anyone looking at that to see if it has similar 3D structure? Yeah, it's smaller. We don't understand its uh, 3D architecture nearly um, as well um, because the features that it would have, uh, to the extent that it has features, the features it would have are much, much smaller than anything that, uh, that we see in the rest of the genome. Mm, okay. And then, um, you know, I should have asked this way earlier, but what, so what do these insights tell you would be useful to, you know, what can you do with DNA? How can you affect it uniquely because of what you know? What does this open up for you of possibilities? I mean, the reason, you know, why is it that we have the same genome in brain cells to help us think and in immune cells to help us fight disease and in heart cells that, you know, enable those cells to beat, right? We have the same genome, but the genes are doing different things. And what's clear is that the genome is changing how it folds. And because it changes how it folds, uh, that brings about uh, changes in, uh, in gene expression. So essentially changes in folding accompany uh, changes in function um, in the human genome. And uh, so if I have a, you know, if I want to better understand how cells become a liver, because maybe I want to grow livers in a test tube, right? If I want to understand how cancer develops and how the genes go awry, um, understanding the role of folding in gene regulation, is a key, understanding, understanding the role of folding in gene regulation is a key part of that. I'm just trying to think of what to ask you at this point. Um, yeah, so in different... Um, oh, all right. So you, you mentioned in, um, in a given cell type, Will the DNA fold in the same way, or it's only across different cell types? So within a cell type, there are more similarities in the DNA folding pattern than across cell types. Although, as I said, uh, no two genomes are ever folded in the same way, um, even in the same cell type. But there are certain patterns that are similar in, uh, that are more similar in uh, when you're looking at the same cell type than when you're looking at different cells. Okay. Okay. So, Aris, what's the best way for people to get visualizations on your work? read papers, you know, find out more. I'm happy to send you uh, a whole bunch of links. Um, there was a, I wrote a piece in Scientific American uh, last year. That is, I think, a good way to learn about it. And actually, all of our data is uh, shared publicly on the internet. Um, you know, it looks like looking at genome folding, looking at the use of genome folding in, uh, in its applications to conservation, to, you know, looking at the genomes of many creatures. We share all of our data publicly on the web. Um, so, you know, if there are citizen scientists who are interested, we are, uh, you know, we're an open book. That's great. Harris, thank you for coming. It's been awesome. Great call. Thanks so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com.